Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, we are recording this, uh, we, I'm recording this on April 16th uh, from my dining room once again. We're on week who knows what of uh, isolation and, and quarantine uh, here in Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, this is our inaugural Journal Club episode. So two weeks ago, uh, I talked about this and tweeted this out and, and put it on Instagram. The article that we're going to do, which is uh, unscheduled uh, hydration re- or hydration requirements. What's the title of this thing? Hydration requirements in patients receiving highly emetogenic chemo published in Future Oncology in 2019. Uh, before we get into this, why, why is Journal Club such a popular activity or assignment for pharmacy learners. And there are, you know, a couple reasons for that. One is it's a way to learn. So when I have students do a journal club, I am learning something about this study. Uh, the students or learners are learning something as well. But it's also a way to assess how, how a learner uh, evaluates and critically thinks through a piece of primary literature. And it's not just a piece of primary literature because that's, um, I think, an error uh, that I see in our students is they think of the journal club as um, I am describing uh, in, in very, very, you know, sometimes minute detail this paper. And that's fine for, you know, a P3, maybe P4 pharmacy student. But as you move on to residency, you want to think about, yes, let's evaluate this study. And we don't need to get into every single detail. You evaluate it. You bring up the details that matter. And then you put it into perspective of everything that's happened before in this disease state or with these drugs. So one of the ways that I tend to tell students to think about a journal club is you are talking about an episode uh, in a TV series. And uh, so, for example, um, last last Sunday, Killing Eve came back on season three, episode one. Now, if I was going to do a, a podcast on season three, episode one of Killing Eve, which my wife and I love, and I'm sure there's a podcast about it, um, if you haven't seen the first two seasons, you 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 are going to be lost when I talk about season three, episode one. Uh, just like if you tuned in to actually watch the program, you'd be lost if you didn't know what happened in season one and season two. And so you don't have time to watch it. Um, whatever, you want to pick back up with it. Well, what they do on the TV is they give you like a one minute previously on Killing Eve. And they go through everything that happened that you need to know from season one, season two to understand what's going to happen in this episode. And that's a key part of Journal Club that takes several years sometimes of experience to figure out what is the important stuff from the past that I need to go find and be familiar with to actually analyze where this study fits into the future and into the present. Now, the more and more you read, the less work you have to do going back into the past to know where things fit in. In a well-written article, all of that work is done for you in the introduction. Okay, and we'll go th- we'll go into that. Uh, but what I want to start with, real quick, is my you know keep it simple, stupid framework for Journal Club, and that's you know the background, which I just talked about. Then who, what, where, when, why, and how. I kind of love how and the what. So what do they do? How do they do it? They kind of go together. So let's start with their background. So uh, this is you know we're talking about hydration requirements and people receiving highly emetogenic chemo. So we're talking about chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting (CINV). And it does affect quality of life. Uh, in fact, we know that even just um, and so this is what they tell you in, in the in the in, um, the introduction. 
So CINV affects quality of life, and that can lead to increased healthcare utilization, increased cost, uh, and that includes dehydration. Um, they don't talk about what the, the chemotherapy-induced risk factors are. You know, like female sex is a risk factor for CINV. Younger age, risk factor for CINV. That's missing from here. They talk about how moderately emetogenic chemo, or MEC, versus highly emetogenic chemo, HEC, uh, is treated based on the chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting guidelines. Uh, they talk about ASCO and NCCN and the European guidelines that go through all that. Uh, they talk about in 2011 how AC was reclassified as highly emetogenic chemo by ASCO. Now, um, uh, AC didn't suddenly become more emetogenic. It's kind of like cough has always been a symptom. Going back to the beginning of man, cough was cough. Cough is not more of a cough or less of a cough now. Cough is cough. AC is AC as far as its emetogenic potential. So why did the ASCO guidelines reclassify AC from moderate to high? Because in all the previous guidelines, it was moderate. It was reclassified based on high because there was, you know, the pivotal uh, studies that got a prepotent or EMEND approved showed uh, an improvement in uh, like, like a breast cancer patient population receiving AC that adding a neurokinin 1 antagonist improved both acute, delayed, and complete uh, responses uh, with chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. So instead of having a moderate category that had a three-drug regimen of 5-HG3, DEX, and uh, a prepotent, they just said, we'll just move it to the, we'll move AC to the highly imaginative category to make the table look better. That's basically what they did. Okay, they don't tell you that in the, in the paper. Uh, some of the things they don't tell you in the paper uh, is that um, they state that unscheduled hydration is reason, you know, they're kind of hyping up this fact that dehydration in, decreases quality of life. That's kind of their opinion. It's a reasonable secondary endpoint to look at, but it's not a well-established determinant of impaired quality of life is hydration requirements. Um, they have this wonderful statement, quote, the guidelines recommend the two most commonly used 5-HT3 receptor antagonists, palonosetron and granisetron, end of quote. No citation. Uh, Ondansetron says hi. Uh, now, specifically, they're talking about a new formulation of granisetron that was approved uh, by the FDA in 2016, uh, granisetron extended release sub-Q, which they abbreviate GERSK. I'm going to call it GERSK. Uh, they talk about the pivotal magic study that got GERSK approved, um, and that was based mostly on an improvement in delayed CINV benefit, not acute. Um, now, what they don't tell you is in all the, you know, before 2011, all the chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting guidelines, uh, guidelines said, whatever 5-H3 antagonist you use is fine. One's not better than the other. The guidelines then had a brief, you know, period of a couple years where uh, palonostron was the, quote, preferred 5-HT3 antagonist, at least for MEC. And that was based off a study uh, where they gave one dose of Palo and its 40-hour half-life and compared it to just one dose of Ondansetron with its 8-hour half-life. Now, prior CINV guidelines stressed that 5-HT3 antagonists are only effective for acute nausea and vomiting, and that's because serotonin levels peak at least after cisplatin in the 24 hours after you receive cisplatin. Therefore, a serotonin antagonist afterwards really has no effect on delayed nausea and vomiting. Now, in fact, ondansetron was shown to be inferior to prochlorperazine. So Zofran was worse than compazine at treating delayed nausea and vomiting uh, back in some early studies. But when you compare Palo with a 40-hour half-life versus ondansetron on top of the other standard antiemetics, Palo was better only in delayed nausea and vomiting. And that's because you had some extra 5-HE3 antagonist around that the ondansetron folks didn't. I'm sure that if you did ondansetron daily for three or four days, you'd see no improvement. 
So what we have here uh, in the in introduction here is they're describing this extended release granisetron, sub-Q injection one time that lasts for seven days. You only give it once every seven days compared to palinositron, which has that, you know, that long half-life. So you've got two long-acting one-time dose 5-HC3 antagonists being compared to each other. Um, now the introduction doesn't talk about palo's long half-life, doesn't talk about the pivotal studies that got palinositron or aloxy approved. Only granisetron, which should always raise a little bit of a red flag whenever uh, you're looking at drug A versus drug B, but all the introductions about drug A and not about drug B. Uh, and basically what they're doing here is a retrospective analysis of GERSC versus PALO in patients um, uh, getting chemo and whether and the rates of unscheduled hydration. Okay, so, oh, oh, dog, settle down, dog. So let's talk about who uh, is in this paper. And we can talk about who is and who are the patients, uh, but let's talk about the researchers because that'll be quicker. So there are four authors on this study. Um, and just out of curiosity, you know, let's let's look at who these authors are, right? Not by name, but author one uh, is on the Speakers Bureau, has received honoraria, travel compensation, uh, and is a consultant advisor for Heron Pharmaceuticals, who makes GERSC. Author two, uh, Heron Consultant Advisor, Speakers Bureau, uh, and honoraria. Uh, author three, consultant advisor for Heron, uh, and then author four, just honoraria, and actually is employed by a stats company, and Heron paid for the statistical analysis this uh this this paper so if you can get someone to pay for your stats hey that's that's half the ball game right there all right so who are the patients well you're talking under 200 patients receiving mech or heck uh and either they got gersk or palo as their 5-ht3 antagonist they all got phosphate prepotent they all got dex on day one and then dex for the next three days for three quote three times daily and this was uh you know kind of inside of this question of who where was this? Well, this was a single center, sorry, a single community-based practice with nine locations. They don't say where it is, but three of the authors are from Utah, so somewhere in Utah. Um, when was this? They don't say. This paper was published in 2019, but sometime between 2016 when GERSC was approved and 2019 when, when this was published is when they did this. Uh, and they got about 90 patients in each group. Now, what is missing in the WHO are the inclusion-exclusion criteria. Uh, I don't know how long this this went on. If it went on for two years, you only have 200 people in your practice getting Palo or Gersk, um, or 100 of each. So it's a little little odd. Uh, let's look at the demographics here. And when you look at baseline demographics in a paper, what you're wanting to see is, okay, do these people look like the people I see and the people I treat? Is it typical of this patient population? And two, you know, are they the same between both groups? Are the are the baseline demographics balanced? So. The A average age was 55 in the PALO group versus 64 in the GERSC. That was statistically significant. So the GERSC folks were older. Remember, younger age is a risk factor. So based on that, the PALO group was higher risk. Um, the PALO group was 99% female versus 79% in the GERSC. So that's an imbalance. Uh, again, PALO, higher risk. PALO group, higher risk. 82% uh, of uh, patients in the PAL group had breast cancer, kind of fitting with that female uh, demographic. 40% in the breast cancer group, that's statistically significant. Uh, and then how many received highly emetogenic chemo? And that does include AC. Uh, it also includes anything with carboplatin, um, uh, AUC 5-6. Uh, 99% of patients in the PAL group had received HEC versus 83% in the GERSC arm. Um, now, right away, 
that's that's like the that's the fatal flaw in a study, right? That's the whole ball game. You're trying to compare one drug versus another for treating chemo, and you have more people in the palo group getting highly emitted chemo. All of them, ninety nine percent have HEC in the palo group versus only eighty three percent in GERSC. It's completely unbalanced. Uh, you could try to have done something different to control for that. Um, it's very fishy that the inclusion-exclusion criteria are not described. Um, and there's some other fishy stuff here that I've alluded to already that I won't go into anymore. Uh, which chemo regimens they do, they're very transparent in the paper, so good for them of what chemo was given. 79% um, of patients in the PALA group received dose-dense AC uh, versus only 27% in the GERSCARM. The GERSCARM had a whole bunch of hodgepodge of stuff, basically. Um, now, what's missing here is the stage of cancer. Right? We're looking at hydration status. So sometimes pe people with very advanced disease, uh, like, like abdominal or GI malignancies, uh, they're not going to be able to eat or drink. Uh, they, they might be NPO because of their disease state for some reason. And, of course, they would have more uh, unscheduled hydration. They do say they're only looking at unscheduled hydration due to CINV, but that could be a little bit muddy. Uh, what else is missing, though, from the baseline demographics? We have age, we have, uh, we have sex, but there are other risk factors like history of motion sickness or history of anxiety. Uh, those risk, risk factors for CINV we'd like to see to ensure that they're balanced, although it probably doesn't matter because the heck mech is the percentage of people who got highly medicated chemo is so unbalanced in the study. It's basically meaningless, right? So that's who. Uh, we don't know exactly how they were identified because there's no inclusion-exclusion criteria, and there's a huge imbalance of patients more so getting highly emetogenic chemo in the PALA group than the GERS group, like 16% more. Okay, so that's the who, that's the where, that's the when. Uh, so what, what happened? How'd they do this? Well, it was retrospective. So right, these patients are not randomized. And you can see what happens when you have a retrospective study. You end up with imbalanced groups because you can't uh, randomize. And they're looking at unscheduled hydration for the first four cycles uh, due to chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. What should be here is a definition of how the researchers retrospectively identified CINV-related need for hydration. That's not, that's not uh, described. Uh, it'd also be nice to see things like what were the diarrhea rates between the groups. Maybe that contributed along with CINV to their dehydration. Infection, like C. diff, things like that. Uh, none of that is mentioned there. Um, their primary endpoint, so what they're looking at, their primary endpoint is, is hydration rate, which is described as the number of unscheduled hydration visits divided by the number of total chemotherapy cycles. And you get 0.6 with the PALA group versus 0.2 with the GERS group. And that's statistically significant via the Wilcox and Rank Sum test. I don't know what that means, 0.6 versus 0.2. I've never seen that before. Uh, they don't actually tell you the number of actual unscheduled hydration events. Um, they don't tell you the total number of cycles. They tell you not all the information you kind of need, in my opinion. What they do tell you, and this is a little easier, and that's actually what they use in their visual abstract, which is very visually appealing and easy to take in, is the percent of patients who had at least one unscheduled hydration. It's 54% with PALO, which is uh, higher than the GERS group, 33%. Uh, p-value of 0.0033 via chi-squared. So that's easy to see. So what if we talk about that, uh, there was a delta difference. 11% more people in the PALO group than in the GERS group required uh, at least one unscheduled hydration visit. Now remember, 16% more uh, patients in the PALO group were receiving highly emetogenic chemo. Um, 
So one way to look at this, as uh, the, the conclusion suggests, this is the conclusion, GERSC with a three-drug antiemetic regimen may reduce unscheduled hydration requirements with MEC or HEC. Another way to say this is that um, PALO uh, overcomes uh, highly metagenic chemo risk of unscheduled hydration by about 5% because there are 5% more or 16% more folks with HEC in the PALO group compared to GERSC uh, and only an 11% uh, improvement in unscheduled hydration in the GERSC group. Now, of course, you can't take anything from this. It's retrospective. It's unbalanced. You, you can't can't take anything from it. Um, so, you know, why Why would I pick this this paper to do as, as our first journal club? Well, there's, there's um, you know, there's nothing that you can take from this study, right? It's a retrospective study, which, okay, sometimes there's good information you can get from retrospective studies. Retrospective studies can be done simply. They're great resident projects. You can learn how to do research. And sometimes you can ask or ask uh, and answer a reasonable question that you could not otherwise answer with a randomized controlled clinical trial. Now, both GERSC and PALO or Aloxy, uh, and I think GERSC, the brand name here is Sustol, they both have pivotal studies. You could look at the rates of hyd- unscheduled hydration in the studies probably. That's probably in, you could get access to that probably. Uh, if it was really important and showed some improvement for uh, a drug company's drug, they would probably publish a subgroup analysis based on that. They haven't done that to my knowledge. So why do this? I cannot think of a good, you know, honest reason to do this. Now, I think it's very fair uh, to consider unscheduled hydration as a secondary uh, efficacy endpoint in CIMD studies. Uh, But there are lots of things that go into needing hydration besides just nausea and vomiting. Um, But the reason I want to do this, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about uh, to talk about bad studies, it is a study that if you had an on or if you're an oncology student, you could have read up a lot on chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and you should have been able to pick out the gross discrepancy, the gross discordance uh, between the baseline demographics. If you did that, you know, first base, you're at first base uh, at evaluating primary literature. Uh, because you would have had to have uh, either known or done the research on the background of how CINV is treated and the different risk factors, and then you should have identified there's a basically a fatal flaw in uh, the two groups here and how they're allocated. And you know you're prone to that with baseline demographics. Now, let's say you're a burgeoning pharmacy researcher and you're like, but still, I think I think there's something to this unscheduled hydration. How could we how could we look at this? The way I would look at it is I would look at the unscheduled hydration events um, as either a, you know an observational cohort study and look at the people who had uh, you know like it's a, kind of like a case control study sort of a thing. Maybe look at who had unscheduled hydration, try and match them, uh, find control. So the cases are unscheduled hydration events. The controls are people with the same malignancy getting the same treatment that did not have unscheduled hydration. And then what are the differences? Is there a drug-related difference? My guess is there's probably not. Um, What you might find is that uh, people who end up with unscheduled hydration, maybe they they didn't receive olanzapine, and they were actually on a a highly imagenic chemo um, regimen, which is another flaw of this study that we've just come to which is that based on today's guidelines, all the folks in the highly emetogenic chemo group should have been on a four-drug cocktail, not a three-drug cocktail. So, you know, that was fun. It's always fun to be really negative about uh, about a paper. Um, but that's what we have, you know. So uh, if for some reason uh, what might happen 
is if you ever run into somebody who is repping or trying to sell Gersk, they might very well use this paper and try and say, hey, you know, this drug works for seven days, it's a one-time dose, and it decreases unscheduled hydration events. Can't say that based on this paper. And if somebody says that, I'd like to hear about it. Anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, next week, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that's been coming out. We've got two new drugs approved, and we got some uh, updates to get to. So we'll get back kind of uh, on schedule with that next week time and availability permitting uh, pandemic and all. But thank you for listening. Uh, feel free to follow me on uh, Twitter at FarmDeetNib. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at the Farm pod handle. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.